Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England, episode 146, the Agincourt Campaign, part 3, The Battle. Last week, folks, we finally arrived, or almost arrived, at the field of Agincourt. The English had just crossed the bridge at blagny sur tournoise and ahead of them, the English scouts had come screaming down the hill, yelling that the French were ahead of them. As Henry heard the news, he spurred his horse and rode ahead to the Duke of York and up the hill to see for himself. And what he saw must have turned even his bowels to water. A particularly nasty phrase, I've always thought. Ahead of him, a huge mass of heavily armed French men-at-arms. The sound of men shouting, French scouts galloping back to the French news to sound the alarm, the hustle and bustle of battle. Here it was, at last, the moment of truth. Which is when... I'd turn and leg it. And which is when, again, we see the manner of this man. Somewhere around this time, one of Henry's knights, Walter Hungerford, staring grimly at the mass of France's finest, said he wished he had another 10,000 of the finest archers of England. Pshaw, said Henry. Pshaw. Bring it on. Or, as a chronicler had it, My hope does not wish for one man more. Victory is not to be given on the basis of numbers. God is all-powerful. My cause is put into his man. If Walter Hungerford was uplifted by such confidence or wondered what he was doing here with a religious nut or thought that God and 10,000 men would probably have been the better option, history does not record. And in fact, this is probably post-victory fluff, but hey, 
Henry earned these fine words and reputation, so if it isn't true, it deserves to be true. Because Henry turned his horse, shouted words of encouragement to his men, and had them form into battles at the top of the hill, looking the French straight in the eye. As they stood there, the troops began to make their confession, and priests moved through the English lines. Archers checked their kit and their stakes, men-at-arms adjusted their armour, horses were sent to the back. The odd page-boy no doubt got a clip round the ear for giving his boss a bit of lip. Henry stalked the lines, giving out fine words, about how he'd rather die than be taken by the enemy. Though actually, secretly, it's quite possible that Henry sent an embassy to the French to ask for a truce. It's not quite clear. But if he could have seen into the French camp he'd have found the French disinclined to fight just now. In their fine tents sat the greatest men in France. Marshal Bouquicourt and Constable d'Albray sat in consultation with the French leaders, including the Duke of Bourbon and the Duke of Alençon, talking through their options. The military men, Bouquicourt and d'Albray, were cautious. Putting the option that letting Henry go without a fight would be low risk. Harfleur would be easy to retake once he'd gone through. But the Dukes would not hear of it. Pshaw! The greatest battle of our lives lies ahead. We'll make mincemeat out of them. And I say again, pshaw! But just at the moment there were a few gaps in the lists of the greatest men. The Duke of Burgundy's brothers, unlike the Duke of Burgundy himself, were as keen as mustard to be at the battle and at the English, but they hadn't yet arrived, so that would be the Duke of Brabant from the north and the Count of Nevers from the south. The supreme French commander, the Duke of Orléans himself, had yet to rock up as well, and the Duke of Brittany with his 6,000 men. And more men were joining the French army by the minute, so a day's delay was probably absolutely fine and dandy as far as the French leaders were concerned, pas a problème. And so they withdrew and set up camp and as sunset fell, Henry stood his army down. At which point it began to rain, which was miserable. The traditional picture, then, is one of a sombre and slightly loose-bowled English camp and a riotous, fun-filled French one. The armies seem to have been quite close to each other, and certainly the picture is probably accurate as far as the French is concerned. There was a lot of dysentery about, they were dead scared, They were short of food and they were hungry, and if they lost they were toast, and far from home toast. The French picture is not quite as clear-cut. What you have to bear in mind is that, rather satisfyingly, the French chroniclers and political elite were really, really upset about the defeat at Agincourt. And I hope that's not a plot spoiler for anyone, by the way. Sorry if it is, but yep, the English win. Anyway, So the French afterwards went into a frenzy of recrimination and self-loathing and they did their very best to big up all the crass things the French leaders did before the battle and make them sound really foolish and dumb and explain the defeat. And of course, meanwhile, the English chroniclers were keen to present a triumph over adversity and a David and Goliath story. And so they ended up doing exactly the same thing. And so we get these Stories of the French magnates placing bets on the English lords they'd capture, rolling around with overconfidence and arrogance about the completeness of their victory. 
The truth is, the French would have spent a pretty uncomfortable night there themselves. The ground was wet and muddy, they'd been marching for days. But they were a step up on the English. They were confident that the following day would deliver victory and the spoils of war. But they were sober and professional enough to agree a plan and think about the challenges they faced. They clearly didn't simply think the English would be rolled over without a fight. They created a battle plan, refining that which had been discussed at Rouen with the king days before. And the French leaders, Bouquicourt, Dalbray, Bourbon, worked it through as the pages came and went for wine and food on their command as they sat in their tent. So here's the plan. There would be two main battles. The vanguard would be commanded by the professionals, Bouquicourt and Dalbray. The main battle would be commanded by the Duke of Alençon. Overall command, of course, would be the Duke of Orléans once he arrived. But there were also some clever, sneaky subplots. The French were well aware of the dangers of the English archer and the impact he had, and so they had a plan. A flying column of a thousand cavalry, commanded by a chap called David de Rambourg. The cavalry would swing round each flanks, attack and scatter the lightly armed archers, leaving the feeble English men-at-arms open to being crushed. And then there was the sneaky plan. A force of 200 mounted men would circle right round, appear by surprise in the English rear and attack the baggage. Now why, I hear you ask, would anyone bother to attack a bunch of suitcases? Distraction was the answer. Distraction fear, doubt and confusion. The baggage would be lightly guarded. Maximum chaos and confusion would result. The king thinks, maybe this is a flank attack. King calls men from the front line to deal with it. Line weakened. French breakthrough. Game over, dude. It's a decent plan. In the marshal's tent that night, you could hear a faint dripping noise. The dripping noise was not just from the rain outside. There was a fair amount of dribbling as the French contemplated the prizes and ransom opportunities that awaited them in the morning. As we say, the armies were close together. and From the French line came the normal cries and noises you get from thousands of blokes in the same place. Probably, therefore, not for the faint-hearted. Mud, however, was clearly already an issue. A stream of pages were sent scouring the local villages for straw to spread on the churned-up ground in the camp. In the English camp there was silence, by order of the king. And you have to ask why, and who knows. But it could have been to guard against night attack, and as it happens, we think both English and French did either send scouting squadrons or contemplate a night attack. It could have been to help his men kip and prepare for the following day. But it was probably also that the super-religious Henry felt that it was right and meet that his men were quiet, prepared for battle, and prepared, quite possibly, to meet their maker. And still, it rained. Henry was in a house at the nearby village of Maisoncelle, in all likelihood spending a significant part of the night in prayer, according to his idiom. At some time during the night, a cold and wet Duke of Orléans rocked up to the French camp, and everything was in its place. Somewhere to the north and east, the Duke of Brabant and Count of Nevers were trying desperately to get to the battle. Somewhere to the south, the Duke of Brittany 
proud possessor of a secret agreement with Henry of England, was trying desperately to do whatever he could not to get to the battle. At first light, Henry emerged from his house, all eyes on him, no doubt. He mounted a small white horse and worked his way through the mud to his army, where the captains were raising and cajoling their men, and before long, the English were ready. Shuffling forward, scared, wet, worried. And across the fields, they could see the mass of the French camp, and the French probably also worried, but a good deal less ready and a good deal more confident than your average English off Welshman which seems like a good time, spend a couple of hours talking about the numbers and battle disposition, because I know just how much we love that kind of thing. Historians, in my view, have one big drawback. Quite apart from the open-toed sandals, leather elbow patches and billowy printed dresses. They are fun suckers. So when I was a lad, there was no debate, really, or not as far as the Ladybird Henry V book was concerned. There were 30,000 Frenchmen... There were just 6,000 plucky Welshmen and Englishmen, and we won simply because we were cooler with our arrows and stuff. Simple. Historians in their socks and billowy dresses have to search after the truth, as if 12-year-old boys give a tinker's curse about such absurdly abstract concepts as truth, light and honesty. And so the modern debate, led by Professor of Fun-Sucking Anne Curry has reduced the French numbers and increased those of the English. Actually, the good professor has written a jolly good book on the battle, and if you're listening, ma'am, sorry for the fun-sucking comment. Anyway, we've seen that the English army that left Harfleur was in the region of 9,600, with a fighting strength probably in the region of 8,000 men, rather than the traditional 6,000. It was heavily dominated by archers, so it was probably about six to 7,000-odd archers and about 1,500-odd heavily armed men-at-arms. As for the French army, well, the debate rages back and the debate rages forth. And, you know, I'm going to do that typical thing of the failed historian and plump for a reasonable something-in-the-middle approach. The big numbers for the French... 30 to 60,000 are very probably just the normal exaggerations of breathless chroniclers. And both sides, as we've said, had an incentive to exaggerate. The English for propaganda, the French to beat up their failed princes and get them to shape up for next time. So to cut a long story short, before you lose your minds, let's go for 15,000 on the French side. So it's close to 2 to 1, which are odds worth putting a few quid on. But the big thing is the difference in composition between the two armies. It's the same old story. In the fight for love and glory, the French could not get the concept of the big, butch, noble, heavily armed man-at-arms out of their minds. After Cressy and Poitiers, there had been some attempt to raise French archers to compete, but hate it or loathe it, the poxy archer was a figure of low status in the French mind and not worth the rough end of a pineapple. And so, although there were crossbowmen in the French army, their proportion of the whole was the reverse of that of the English. So there were maybe something like 10,000 men-at-arms and 5,000 crossbowmen and archers in the French army. But the other feature of the French archers is not only that there were far less of them, but also that they just don't get used. Ew, get that ugly common archer out of my noble way before he spoils the fun. That sort of thing. 
So, the armies woke up, shouted at each other, captains shouting and hollering, a general sound of squelching and clanking going on. And what of the environment that met their red, damp eyes? The French had chosen a site between two villages, Azincourt and Tramacourt, which were placed on the left and right of the field of battle. We're talking about a pretty flat part of the world, and therefore between the two armies lay a pretty flat field, which would be perfectly suitable under normal circumstances for cavalry, which would suit the French. On the right and left of the battlefield were woods, on ground that sloped away from the battlefield, and the effect was to create a reasonably restricted and well-defined field for a fight. There was nothing inherently disastrous about the French choice of battlefield. If this had been July, it would have been pretty good. But it was the 25th of October, and it had been raining, and the field was empty of crops, and had been recently ploughed. So... I need to ask you to close your eyes, slow your breathing, and take yourself in your head to a different place. Already? Okay, I want you to remember the last time you walked over a wet, ploughed field, assuming you've done such a thing. If you have, you probably did it in your big walking boots. You will remember how the heavy soil stuck relentlessly to your boots until your feet felt like you had a ten-ton lead weight attached to them. Now then, Copy yourself a few thousand times and imagine all of you trampling over the same ground, some of you on horseback. Imagine the slippery, gooey mess all those feet and hooves create. And now, take your boots off and give yourself some leather medieval pretty much treadless slippers and set off across the field. Whoa, there you go, flatten your backside. You might now try to imagine being shot up by 7,000 archers, but that might be more tricky to manage. Okay. Open your eyes, everyone. Hope you didn't do that if you were driving. Try and keep that image in your head through the battle. The English were arranged in the same battles in which they'd marched. The vanguard under the Duke of York took up a position on the right, the Tramacor side. The main battle was in the centre, commanded by the king. On the left, the rearguard formed up, commanded by a chap called Thomas Lord Camoys, a slightly odd choice since Camoys was more from the administrative side of things back home, but nonetheless he was an experienced sort of bloke, safe pair of hands. While I'm thinking about it, don't forget to go to the website and see the animated map. All of this, you can see all of this, the whole battle, all the layout, all the rest of it. Don't need to visualise it. Anyway, so we have all the same questions about the positioning of the archers as we had at Cressy. The clever money is probably that the archers were focused on the flanks of the army, but that there would have been chunks of archers interspersed between the men-at-arms in each of the battles. Each archer had been ordered by Henry to cut themselves a stake. Imagine their disappointment when they realised he meant out of wood. As the armies prepared, the archers on the flanks, partly protected anyway by bushes and scrub on the edge of the woods, hammered the sharpened stakes into the ground. Getting at them would not be straightforward for the cavalry, which, of course, was the thinking behind it. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On the French side, the deployment was actually quite funny. Basically, most of the elements of the plan were there. Flying columns of horse to attack the archers, the baggage train, all that. We have two battles, Vanguard and Main. 21-year-old Charles, Duke of Orléans, was now in the camp, and in the fervour of youth, he of course puts himself in charge of the Vanguard. Lead from the front, you know how it is. And incidentally, get your hands on a few juicy English lords for ransom. Bukiko and Charles d'Albray were, of course, not going to be left out, and they were in the van too. And then suddenly the air was full of posh French accents, all demanding to be in the vanguard. Because as they looked over the field, something like 10,000 French men-at-arms could see a poxy two-bit, no-good cotton-picking, 1,500 English men-at-arms. Forget the archers, they were a bunch of low-born peasants and soon would be toast anyway. No, those sorry-looking 1,500 English men-at-arms were going to be slaughtered. No problem. Better get in quick before everyone else gets all the glory and all the ransoms. And so you end up with this massive vanguard, because essentially the French thought they would sweep the English away. The French archers completely disappear, probably ordered to fire ineffectually from the back so as not to get in the way of the men-at-arms. From somewhere around 6.40 in the morning, the English start getting up and are soon in place. The French, meanwhile, have a lie-in, and it's not until 10 that they're in place. We get all the preliminaries. A speech from Henry as his soldiers kneel for Mass, including In remembrance that God died on the cross for us, let every man make a cross in the earth and kiss it, in a token that we would rather die on the soil than flee. This is a nice, typical Henrician combination of God, war and ground kissing and I personally doubt many lips actually met mud. Then the two armies just looked at each other. There's a lot of time wasting. Heralds meet in the middle from both sides. The French wearing white crosses and the English red to distinguish each other. Afterwards all claim to have offered peace to allow them to justify war. On the French side, there's a lot of hugging going on in the camp as the French factions swear to forget the splits between them of the last few years and combine to kick the English out. Bukikul, martial and French hero, knighted 500 men, including the Duke of Burgundy's son, the Count of Nevers, who had finally tipped up. Actually, then it gets a bit awkward, like silence in a lift. It probably bothered Henry more than it bothered Orléans. After all, the English battle plan was reasonably standard. The French charge into a bunch of arrows, we slaughter them, and so on. And so the French were spoiling the script by not attacking. For the French, meanwhile, they had folk joining them all the time. The longer they wait, the better it was as far as they were concerned. So worried, Henry met with his commanders and discussed the options and they decided that they had to go to the beast, before numbers and exhaustion put paid to any English hopes. And so captains rushed to tell their men, 
they were all to advance until the archers on the flanks could reach the French lines with their arrows. And so, as 8,000 English and Welshmen watched, old Sir Thomas Erpingham appeared from the ranks, mounted on a horse. He raised a white baton in the air, and he roared, Now strike! And he sent the baton spinning high into the air. The trumpet sounded, and down the line came the cries of captains to, Advance banners! Archers grabbed their stakes and set off. Men-at-arms grimly strode forward, and with cries and clanking and flapping of pennants, Henry's army went to war. What must have felt like an enormous gamble turned out to be a stroke of genius. The French were completely shocked to see the English advancing, and they panicked. The whole French vanguard lurched forward. The plans weren't quite forgotten. On the French left, Clignier de Brabant was to lead the cavalry attack on the English archers. He ran, screaming at his men to mount up, and found he only had 120 of the 600 he was supposed to have, because the rest were off chilling somewhere. On the other wing, things were slightly better, with 300 mounted men-at-arms joining the side of Rambour in their attack on the English archers. And maybe in retrospect, this is the crucial bit of the battle. Without the archers, the English men-at-arms would in all probability have been overwhelmed by the massive French superiority in numbers. Seeing movement on the wings ahead of them from the French, the English and Welsh archers stopped and planted their stakes. The whole army had in fact stopped after about 200 yards of advancing once the French started moving. And then on came the heavy French horse, armoured on their chests and shoulders against the English arrows. Imagine, gentle listeners, imagine the terrifying beat of horses' hooves as tons of flesh and metal bore down at speed on the defenceless archers. Imagine it, because you would have seen nothing of the sort back in 1415. Hoof met wet ploughed field. Hoof sank into ploughed field. Ploughed field turned to sticky hell. And as the French horse slipped and lumbered towards the archers, they met a hail of steel that cut through armour and horse flesh and turned the assault into a chaos of dying, falling, thrashing men and horses. Archers ran forward and shot at close range into any surviving men. The odd man-at-arms that reached the archers were held off by the stakes and most just ran away. And the French plan was already in trouble. Nonetheless, the massive vanguard of over 8,000 French men-at-arms came on to attack the puny English 1500. In terms of the melee of armoured men, just for the first French battle, we're talking an advantage of over 5 to 1 and they would have been followed closely by the main French battle. But as they marched, the French were exposed to the full fury of the English archers on both flanks, and the archers positioned ahead of them in the English line. And essentially, the French found themselves in a funnel, squeezed between two woods, with flanking fire from the archers that caused them all to squeeze further together in the middle, as far away from the archers as possible, but making them even more vulnerable. And now, remember that imagining that you were doing of walking over a ploughed field. Go back to that now. It's not fun, is it? So by the time the French slipped and stumbled and staggered their way to the English line, they were knackered or dead. The French had shortened their lances to give greater thrusting power and to be easier to control in the melee, but initially 
It gave them a disadvantage, making it difficult to get inside the longer English lances to engage. As Frenchmen died and fell, those following had to clamber over a growing pile of bodies. At the bottom of those piles, many wounded men were dying from suffocation. For the Frenchmen, there was no way to rest, recover, and attack the English line with full fury. So there's a terrible period for the French where they died in droves. As one chronicler wrote, the French stood immobilized while our men wrenched axes from their hands and felled them in the same way they felled cattle. Even the lightly armed archers began to get involved in the melee, darting into attack where they saw an opportunity. Often they used the mallets they used to drive their stakes into the ground, a massive smack on the head to drive the Frenchmen to the ground, to be finished off by a poleaxe from an English man at arms. The use of a poleaxe deserves a mensch. It's a nasty piece of work, a long shaft with a sharp spear point at the tip of the shaft, then an axe head with a sharp point opposite the axe head. The poleaxe gave defence against horses when jammed into the ground, a long reach and a point to drive through the helmet. Nonetheless, the French had a massive superiority in numbers and eventually some did reach the English line. In the Duke of York's battle, the fighting was fierce and Englishmen too began to die. By this stage, the main battle of the French army had entered the fight as well and with it Jean, the Duke of Alençon, a chip off the old block, a family history of fighting the English and under Gesquelin of winning against the English. And the tradition is that it was Alençon himself who reached and cut down Edward, Duke of York. As the pressure grew, there was no time for the tradition of taking prisoners. Quote, No one was captured, many were killed. The English were increasingly eager to kill, for it seemed there was no hope of safety except in victory. They killed those near them, and then those who followed. But the French line had finally stopped moving forward. The pressure from the back had eased, because now more and more Frenchmen, viewing the carnage of mud, blood and dead bodies ahead, were retreating back to the French lines. And at this point, Henry himself entered the battle, and you have to suspect it was because he could see the French were ready to break, that now was the time to push them over the edge with everything he had. Equally, this gave the French a chance to grab victory at the point of defeat. Targeting the king had always been part of their strategy. The Seigneur de Croix, for example, had put together a group of 18 of his finest men to search for and kill the king. The Seigneur de Croix was now dead. In fact, all 18 of his men were dead too. But the Duke of Alençon, he found Henry and his brother Humphrey. And with his men, he attacked the royal bodyguard. They got close. Humphrey took a sword thrust in the groin and fell to the ground and Henry stood forward to stand over him and protect him. Alençon attacked, and his axe hit hard enough to break off a portion of the gold crown from his head. But by then Henry's bodyguard had caught up, and before long it was Alençon himself who was dead. And nothing could illustrate how desperate this fight was. Alençon would have been worth a fortune taken alive as a hostage. But by now the French had had enough, and they began to break. And it's at this point that one of the other French tactics came into play. 600 local men attacked the baggage train, slaughtered the few left there to defend it. The idea had been to distract the English at a crucial point, but they'd arrived too late to make a real difference, because the French 
were already in retreat. To add to their failure, they spent their time robbing the king's treasury rather than trying to cause a panic in the back of the English line. About this time also arrived the Duke of Brabant. He had ridden as hard as he could ahead of his main army with a small bodyguard, and he took one look at the mess ahead of him and realised time was short. He ordered one of his men to tear the Brabant coat of arms from his trumpet. He made a rough hole in it for his head and charged his horse into the fray as fast as he could, roaring his battle cry, Brabant! Brabant! One of his bodyguards, John de Grimberg, looked at what was ahead of him and bravely turned his tail and fled. By the end of the day, the Duke of Brabant's lifeless body lay naked in the mud, stripped of anything of value. With the French in full retreat, the English could recover. Archers ran forward to recover arrows. French foot soldiers were ruthlessly knifed. Knights of value were ruthfully dragged from beneath the press of bodies, helped to their feet and taken prisoner for ransom. It's probably worth mentioning at this point two traditions from Agincourt. One is that the English archers had their hose around their knees because of dysentery. And Curry says, nah, much more likely to help with ease of movement. I have to say, I really can't see how having hose around your knees helps with mobility, but who knows. I'd go for the dysentery one myself. The other concerns the origin of the insulting V sign. The tradition goes that this supposedly derives from Agincourt, where the French had threatened to cut off two fingers from any Englishman they found so that their archers could never again use their bows. As the French ran away from them, the English archers are supposed to have waved their two fingers at them in insult. Historians tell us the myth has absolutely no evidence to support it, apparently. As I say, historians, fun suckers. But at this point in the battle, something happened. The retreating French had stopped. Cligny de Brabant had taken charge. He'd stopped the rout. He'd turned them around. He'd reformed their lines. And the French looked as though they were advancing back towards the English. Around the battlefield, a rumour spread like wildfire. The Duke of Brittany had arrived at last with 6,000 fresh men. So from where he stood, Henry looked around at the battlefield. All over it, his men were beginning to gather the fruits of victory. Some were stripping off their armour, exhausted. Men were stripping bodies, killing the lowly with a knife to the windpipe or a blow to the back of the head. The posh were being taken prisoner. A squire called William Wolfe took the great Busico as prisoner. I say Busico because I'm told, gentle listener, that I've had the pronunciation Bukiko wrong all this time. I'm appalled. A squire called Ralph Faun had bagged the warlike and aggressive Duke of Bourbon. And so Henry panicked. It wasn't all over. His men were vulnerable disorganised, exposed and spread all over the battlefield. And in his panic, he ordered all the prisoners not of royal blood to be killed. Horrified, his archers failed to respond and he ordered a special force of 200 men to do it and within minutes the sound of screaming filled the air as men were butchered in cold blood by their capturers, even in one case being burnt to death where they were being kept in a house. One of these men killed was actually the Duke of Brabant. With a tattered old flag round his head, no one believed his story that he was a great man of royal blood. 
This butchery was against all the laws of chivalry, quite apart from its brutality, and Henry's reputation has suffered because of it. On the one hand, Henry did what he calculated was required. His men were dispersed and vulnerable. The prisoners could have formed a danger to his rear and were an encouragement to the French army advancing against him. Prisoners that could be saved. By killing them and sending heralds to tell the advancing French what he'd done, he removed both dangers at a stroke. And whether it was this or whatever, the French got the message. It was all over now, because they were fleeing. The conclusion is probably this. Henry was a calculating and ruthless man capable of enormous brutality. Clearly he made a judgment, and who can know whether it was really required or not? We have to leave that to Henry. But however necessary it might have been, it required a pretty ruthless and brutal man to give such an order. So there we are. The Battle of Agincourt, ladies and gentlemen. As it began to rain again, Henry gathered his men and gave them a couple more speeches, telling them all how they owed this victory to God. The great men of France were stripped and their corpses lay naked in the rain and mud. The Duke of Bar, the Duke of Alençon, the Constable of France, Charles d'Albray. The brothers of John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy, lay dead, the Duke of Brabant and the Count of Nevers. Half of the French men-at-arms were either dead or captured. The battle had probably taken three to four hours. By four in the afternoon, Henry was back at his lodgings. That evening, he ordered his French captives to wait on him at table. Nice touch. So the Duke of Orléans and the Duke of Bourbon waited on Henry at table, and that must have been exquisite torture. The next day, the English left, and by the 28th of October, they were in Calais and safety. As the king processed through the town, the people of Calais shouted and cheered, and the priests sang, We praise you, O Lord. The archers, meanwhile, were left outside, because no one trusted them not to loot the place. By the 29th of October, the news had reached England, and everyone went potty. And so, hopefully a nice place to stop, with Henry victorious. Now, next week... We're going to have a break from all this war and all that sort of stuff. I am frequently asked to do two things. One, spend a bit more quality time with history other than political and warry stuff. And two, to talk more about women. Well, unaccustomed as I am to talking about women, I'm going to do my very best. So next time we're going to talk about Anglo-Saxon England and the role of women. And after that, we'll cover the impact of 1066 on women and a bit of other stuff, including the return of the weekly word, incidentally and there'll be more the time after that. And after three weeks away from political narrative, I will be mentally and physically exhausted, so episode 150 will probably be back to Henry and the war with France again. I have some donators to thank, to Nancy, Mark, Mariah and Mark. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you for listening, for your comments on the website, iTunes, Facebook and all that sort of stuff. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week.